We have been in a series over the last uh, number of weeks. It's kind of been, it was kind of laid on my heart while I was away. I had time off in August and I just really, I wanted to spend some time speaking into a topic that I think is one of the hot topics uh, in terms of every so often things come along in the Christian faith and, and when you're in the church and it's like we talk loads about them all at once. And that one at the minute, I feel one of the big ones is discipleship. It kind of, it's, I'm, I'm not saying anything new here, like it's kind of there, right? It's kind of part of the deal. But all of us, every so often th- things come along and it's like right on our eye line. We're talking loads about it. There's loads of books out about it. We're reading loads about it. All of that stuff all at once. And I really wanted to spend some time uh, this September kind of digging into what is the nature of discipleship. And we've been using a text, uh, the same text each week, kind of supplementing it with some other bits and pieces. And that text is Mark 8, 34 through to 9, verse 1. You're getting bored of it now, right? But you're going to have to put up for it up with it for another two weeks, right? Uh, But this week, we're going to read it again, okay, as a church. So that's Mark 8, verse 34 through to 9 and verse 1. The words will appear behind me if you've got a Bible in your phone, why don't you grab it now? And this section that is kind of commonly in your Bibles titled normally, The Way of the Cross. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross And follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death. For they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us loud and clear today. Today is one of those kind of special uh, days in the life of the church where we get to come to the table. I'm pointing at something like we don't have a big table. It's, it's here, right? It's not that glamorous. Okay, we come to the table. I love the table. In the Presbyterian tradition, which I've grown up in uh, most of my life, we tend to take a less is more approach to communion, right? So we do it at certain times throughout the year rather than kind of every week. I get that that has its shortcomings and that there are other ways to do things and all of that sort of stuff. But one of the things that I always loved about that in this tradition is that it creates an event around today. It creates a moment. It feels special. It feels significant. It feels like something might be happening through the simplest of things, bread and wine. And today is one of those days. It's our response today. And in many ways, everything I have to say in the next kind of half an hour really is just trying to get us to there so that we come to the table, we encounter the bread and wine, we meet Jesus as we ingest the elements today. But before we come to the table, we're exploring the second word that Jesus uses in Mark 8 to describe the nature of discipleship, right? That's the angle we're taking on this. What is the nature of discipleship? Not what are the practices or the habits uh, or any of that sort of stuff. What is the nature of it, okay? And last week we had the first word, that word was desire. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple, right? There is a desire, there is a necessity for you to want this, to desire this. We found out that we are people of desire. We are formed around loves. We all have loves, whatever they are. And our life tends to follow our loves, right? It's like a magnet, right? We follow it. We are attracted to the loves, the desires in our lives. And the discipleship journey needs to start with desire. And this week, the word is denial. The word is denial. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Denial. This week's word is denial. And the world in which we, we live, right, is so totally dominated and directed much of the time for a lot of people, particularly in the younger generations, by social media, right? And it could probably best be characterized by the term living my best life. Linda is laughing right now because downstairs while she was kind of packaging up little bits of bread and I asked her, how are you doing, Linda? She said, living my best life while she's putting bits of bread in little plastic containers, right? But, but it's a phrase that has become so totally synonymous with life in an Instagram world, isn't it? It's become so totally synonymous with it. Actually, the phrase was probably introduced by the one and only Oprah Winfrey, right? You never thought you were getting a lesson today in the origins of living my best life, right? But it probably started with Oprah way back as far as 2005 when she published a book called Live Your Best Life. That's probably the start of this phrase. Since then, it's become totally synonymous, particularly with Instagram. One columnist writing on this particular topic writes this, get up before sunrise, extra points if you catch the sunrise on a hike or a run, slurp back some green juice with your avocado toast, then get to work in your minimalist home for the company you believe is making a difference. Turnbull noted how the entire concept is built around mantras of live the life you love, love the life you live, and love what you do, and you'll never work a day in your life, right? It's everywhere, isn't it? everywhere. And how perfectly curated even the targeted ads that come your way are now, right? Whatever your thing is, coffee, it's like a perfectly curated scene where, you know, Brad Pitt is sipping on his espresso in the morning, right? Or the one that gets me is perfume ads, right? I cannot deal with perfume ads. Like somebody driving a car and it crashes into a spaceship and it kills a unicorn, but then something else happens. And then at the end, it's like Denial by Paco Rabanne. Like, what is that? But the whole thing is, you can have this life, right? You wear this perfume, your life looks like this. Hashtag living your best life. It's everywhere, right? But the problem is that life for most of us looks nothing like that. Sure, it doesn't. It doesn't look like living my best life a lot of the time. Someone said to me over coffee the other week, I just feel so much that life is happening to me. It's passing me by. Anybody else feel that way? Maybe not all the time, but certainly some of the time. It's not life, living your best life. It's that life is happening to you. And the topic today is denial. Last week was desire, as I said, and that's totally a word that we can get on board with in our world, isn't it? Like desire, passion, follow your passions, you know, do whatever you love, right? We can kind of get on board with a topic like desire, right? We may not understand it totally all the time. We may go after desires in the wrong ways, but desire is a theme we can get on board with. But denial, that's heresy in our world, isn't it? 
Denial is heresy in the world in which we live, and yet Jesus is calling us to live lives of self-denial in a world that is all about self-fulfillment. It's all about self-growth. It's all about your interests. It's all about your talents, your passions. Self-actualization is the official term that psychologists use for it now, right? And it's a vision of the world that totally revolves around me. It revolves around me. Walt Whitman wrote this, nothing is greater to one than one's self is. And it's true, isn't it? Actually, it's definitely true. It's categorically true. Even if we were trying to be honest with ourselves, right? Recent research published in the New York Times shows that people in general tend to live towards an egocentricity bias, right? People just have it. Whether you want it or not, whether you know it or not, people have an egocentricity bias. There's numerous studies by social psychologists, right, which show that normal people consistently exaggerate their own importance in group discussions, right? Right? As in, it was my opinion that changed the course of that meeting, right? I mean, everybody else had things to say, meaningless. My opinion, light bulb, right? It's that sort of thing, right? We exaggerate our own importance. Also, consistently shows that people believe they have more control over events in their lives. And the illusion gives lottery players, for example, they believe their ticket has a greater chance of winning than anybody else's actually Confession time. I feel like I do confession time every week at the minute. Last week it was theft. This week it was I once did the lottery, right? I felt like the Lord spoke to me one night in a dream. I mean, this is ridiculous, right? But I felt like he spoke to me about doing the lottery. So I did the lottery and I am so serious. I was like, I'm going to win 20 million quid. Like I was walking around in the days following with like, it's definitely happening. And then when it didn't happen, I was like crushed. Even though I was one of however many millions of people that entered and my ticket had no greater chance than anybody else's. But our egocentricity bias makes us believe that we do because we entered. People consistently see themselves as the target of others' actions. And then he goes on to say this. For example, if you talk to students after they've gotten their grades back in an exam, Dr. Greenwald said, and ask them if, they, if it was a good test of their abilities. They'll say it was if they did well, but if they did poorly, they'll tell you it was a rotten exam. The effect shows up too in the language people use to describe events such as sport. For example, when fans of a team describe a victory, they're likely to couch it as we won. A, def- a defeat, however, more often is put as they they lost, right? We are all about ourselves. It even boils down to our memories. People are, in fact, more likely to remember information if it somehow relates to themselves. We have our self at heart. We're self-centric, whether we like it or not. And that just spins and spins and spins in our world, doesn't it? So when it comes to love and relationships, it's all about my needs being met. In work, it's about fulfilling my dreams and my aspirations. If we we buy things, we buy to satisfy my wants and we form our view of the world around me. The philosopher Charles Taylor wrote this. We tell people, especially our young people, we say, you've got to be true to yourself. You've got to follow your own inner light. You can't tell anybody what's right or wrong for you. And not only do you have to be true to yourself, you have to be true to yourself no matter what your family says or what your community says or what society says. You don't sacrifice for them. You make them adjust for you. And then he goes on. Then we say to them, but then you have to actually work for justice. 
You have to actually work to alleviate hunger. Of course, those things take sacrifice. What that does is it takes, it takes giving up power. It takes giving up wealth. It takes giving up all sorts of things. So how on earth are they going to do that? Self-denial is not just something that we're, we're, we're not comfortable with it. We very often don't think it's good, except that that's exactly what Jesus is saying is part of the way to life. You want to follow him? You want the life that is really life? Then it needs denial. You need to live in some part of your life with self-denial. It is the saltiness of the Christian life in 2021. So what does it look like? That's the question, right? And why is it important for the discipleship journey? Well, I want to say two things today. It speaks to two parts of what it means to follow Jesus. One, our identity, and two, intimacy. Denial is all about our identity, and it's all about intimacy. The first of those things is identity. One of those things, if you've ever had a staff review uh, or, or you've, you've been through one of those like large scale kind of like civil service, that sort of job interview things, right? One of the things that they will do in those places time, time again, in personal development stuff, one of the things they will reference is your self-awareness, right? So you'll always get that question. What do you think your strengths are as a leader? And what are your weaknesses, right? And it's all this, you know, trying to assess what your awareness of yourself is, right? And that's for good reason. The psychologist Tasha Urich says that 95% of people think they're self-aware and actually only 10 to 15% of people are, right? So I'm looking around the room, there's an awful lot of not self-aware people in here today, right? And I love it, right? Because it's that like people who rant on Facebook about, you know, oh, they're tracking us, sent from my iPhone, right? I love things like that, you know? We used to live in uh, a housing development that had its own Facebook group, which, by the way, was just the best entertainment of all time. But anyway, one of the things that got people one day, uh, one of the biggest reactions on this group was a person who messaged into this public Facebook group. What's the weather like up there today, guys, right? And it was, it was a particularly snowy day. So people were like, oh, snowing outside, blah, 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 blah. It turned out, as the comments went on, the guy was actually in bed. He preferred to text a group on his phone than actually get up and look out of the window, right? The guy got the biggest response ever. It was like, how ridiculous are you? Anyway, self-awareness. Forbes lists this helpful survey to see how self-aware you are. So here we go. Uh, people who aren't self-aware have idea bias, believing good ideas only come from them. Without realizing it, they say things that discourage people. We all know that guy, right? They can't put themselves in someone else's shoes. Yep. They have difficulty taking ownership of mistakes. They naturally become defensive with feedback or when somebody brings up challenging questions. They only surround themselves with people that agree with them. They have an overblown opinion of their performance and how they contribute and they aren't able to adapt how they communicate based on their audience. There's some serious soul searching going on in the room right now. <laughs> so many of us, if we're honest, are quite often unaware of who we are and how we impact the world around us. And when it comes to the Christian life, right, the question of our self-awareness becomes even more profound, doesn't it? And denial is the way to finding out who we really are. Except it might not be how you think, right? These are those first few verses again. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So on first glance, right, I've mentioned the word denial. You're probably thinking, oh, great. I'm a Christian, so that means you've already taken sex outside of marriage. You've already taken drinking too much, and you've already taken a good gossip away from me, right? What else are you about to take? You're coming from a chocolate, right, or my trash TV. Don't you dare take away Love Island, right? I know that's what you're thinking right now. But the thing is, Jesus isn't actually talking about denial in that sense. In the end, it's not asceticism, right? That is the belief that's about denying yourself stuff. It's not about denying yourself stuff. Denial, as Jesus talks about it in the nature of the discipleship journey, is not about all the stuff you can't have and you can't do. That's not what he's getting at. John Stott writes this, Self-denial is not denying to ourselves luxuries such as chocolate cakes, cigarettes, and cocktails, although it might include this. It's actually denying or disowning ourselves, renouncing our supposed rights to go our own way. It's way deeper than just our stuff. Denial in the way of Jesus is way more than your stuff. It's humbly submitting everything you've got to the will of God. Self-denial is self-forgetfulness, as some commentators describe it. And in verse 35, we read that word life several times, okay? Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it, right? And in the face of it, it sounds like Jesus is talking about our physical lives, right? That's the first thing that comes to your mind. Whoever wants to save their life, right, or lose their life. You're talking life and death in this particular case. But the word for life is in this context is suke, right? The word for life, like physical life, biological life is bios. So it's a different word. Bios is the word we get biology from. It's the word suke and it means breath it means soul it means self discipleship it turns out isn't about our priorities or our practices things to stop and things to start discipleship is about a whole new self the way of Jesus is about a whole new self so translating it whoever wants to save their self will lose it, but whoever loses themselves for me and for the gospel will save it. It's almost as if Jesus is saying in this moment, you're never gonna find out who you really are by trying to find out who you really are. It's almost like that's what he's getting at in this passage. You're gonna have to forget yourself in following me, and if you do, you will find who you are. See, some things in life, right, they only happen as byproduct, and identity is one of them. Whether we like it or not, some things in life are byproduct, and identity is one of them, right? You can't change your identity just overnight like that. You can't will yourself into being a new self, right? It doesn't work. It's like that period of time where all of a sudden Ramones t-shirts were in. Do you remember that? Like Top Man was saying Ramones t-shirts, and all of a sudden the whole world were fans of Ramones. None of them ever listened to the Ramones, and one of everyone's favorite things who actually did like the Ramones was asking these people what their favorite track was, right? Because they weren't actually into it. They hadn't overnight become somebody that was into that kind of music. You can't just decide to be a new self. Identity isn't an act of the will. Suppose a huge part of your identity, for example, has been family expectations. The kind of things that your family put on you, what you're going to do in life, how you're going to turn out, 
what life's going to look like, what it should look like right now, right? At your stage of life, I was married and I had two kids. You know, that sort of thing that family does, right? Suppose it's family expectations for you. And suppose one day you break, right? You go around for dinner with your mom and dad. They say some things, you get in the car and you're just like broken about whatever the expectations are, right? Suppose that happens to you. You can't just decide tomorrow to build your identity, for example, on your career. You can't just get in the car and say, well, I'm no longer this person because of that. I'm this person because of my career or my relationship status. It it just doesn't work like that. Ties run deep. Your heart is not a computer in which you can just install a new app. It doesn't work like that. Your identity as a whole person in relationship with Jesus forms as you follow his way and he moves in your life through the challenges and joys of your life. And identity is the byproduct of your journey with him. The problem is, right, that very often we try to find ourselves in all the wrong places, don't we? Verse 36 says this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? That's a really well-known line. We know that one, right? But here's the thing, right? That's very often exactly how we try to find ourselves, isn't it? By gaining the whole world, by trying to fill the void and find ourselves through stuff, money, status, relationship, position, recognition, like whatever it is, that's very often exactly how we try to find ourselves, isn't it? By going after the whole world. The thing is that we won't find ourselves there. That's not where our self is. C.S. Lewis wrote this, and I love it, right? I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. (laughs) I always loved C.S. Lewis's honesty, right? And that's the thing, isn't it? We live in a world where happiness is the metric. Do what makes you happy. And Jesus is talking about forgetting yourself, not fulfilling yourself. Following Jesus meant pursuing joy, right? We know that. And that means losing ourselves. The columnist David Brooks writes this, joy is a dissolved self. I love that. I love that. In order for me to be more me, it turns out I need to be less me. If I want to find myself, I need to dissolve myself. And when you look at Jesus, it's so very clear that his identity and his purpose were completely intertwined, weren't they? Jesus was, all, was able to do and be all the things that he did because he was completely, uniquely himself, right? And as I set myself towards following him, I become more and more aware of the things in me that need to die in order for me to be truly like me. Ambition, anger, The fact that I'm self-centric much of the time. Comfort, security, whether you're scared. What are the things that need to die? That's the question that I need to ask myself and you need to ask yourself today. Self-denial means a new self. And so I ask myself, what needs to die? Denial means I get to find myself, but only if I lose myself in him. And in the end of the day, we've all had that experience in our lives, I think, right? In a little small way. 
We've all had that experience, for example, of going to see something. Ross has just come back from Iceland. I'm incredibly jealous of his pictures of waterfalls and things like that, right? But there is this thing every so often where you go somewhere in nature and it's like you forget yourself, don't you? All of a sudden, you are washed away by the beauty of what's in front of you, the sight, the smell, the sounds, whatever it is for you, the ocean, for example. You forget yourself in those moments or that thing that happens, right, when you come through the winter into the spring and you get like that first day where the sun, when it hits your face, is actually warm. And everybody I know, whenever it happens, just does this. Like you go to City Hall at lunchtime and there's just loads of people sitting on the ground, not saying anything, just like... Forgetting yourself. It's one of the reasons why I love cycling so very much. I find for me, it's one of the places where I actually forget about myself. Often in a hill, some random bay road in the middle of nowhere that you've never heard of, right? I forget myself. I forget about my ambition. I forget about my longings. I forget about the stuff that I was wrestling with whenever I left the house. I lose sight of the fact that I was just angry with my wife or I was distant from the kids. And all of a sudden, I am present where I am. I can feel my heart beating more than I'm aware of all day. I can feel the sun on my back or the wind in my face. And in those spaces, I seem to hear from God more than I do very often when I sit down and I try to. In those moments, I am less aware of me and my stuff than I am for most of the day. And all of a sudden, I realize I am more me. We need to forget ourselves if we're ever going to find ourselves in following him. Denial is first of all about identity. But second of all, denial is about intimacy. And intimacy is a transforming thing, isn't it? I just mentioned cycling, right? And I've been pretty committed at it since I was like about 30, right? I've kind of been pretty full on. Saturday is like, I go out. This has been a source of great contention in our home, you might imagine, right? But I'm pretty committed to it, whether it's the winter and it's freezing or it's raining or whatever. I will generally try to take that slot if it's there, right? Good weather, bad weather, all year round. It's important to me, right? So I'm going, right? It's a Saturday morning, I'm going. Even whenever I don't want to, I'm going, right? That's kind of a thing, right? And I've tried to stick at it. And recently, I was, we were talking to Elle. We've been trying to like, it's my daughter, she's four. We've been trying to like figure out, you know, difference, right? Because one of the things COVID did was it made essentially all seven days of the week exactly the same. So one of the things we're talking about at the minute is like the weekend. And we're trying to get to the point where we talk about Sabbath and have a proper Sabbath in our home and make it completely distinct from all the other days. So we're talking about weekend and that's our end at the minute, right? And so we get to Friday night and we're standing around in the kitchen and, and I say to Elle, right, Elle, tomorrow. Tomorrow's Saturday, it's the weekend, dad's not working, mum's not working, so what would you like to do tomorrow? And she turns around and she says to me, you'll probably go cycling. And I was like, oh, like, you know when you get a great big bit of tinfoil and you crush it down into a tiny ball, like that's how I felt in that moment, right? It got me. And for the first time in my life, I thought about, maybe I shouldn't go tomorrow, right? It happened. Because that's the power of intimacy, isn't it? You long to get it. You long to keep it when you have it. You long to feed it and you long not to offend it. And when I think about intimacy with God, right, I very often think about Adam and Eve in the garden. It's kind of the first thing that usually springs to my mind. I'm not sure why, right, but walking with God in the cool of the day in this place of astonishing 
beauty, makes me think about intimacy, makes me think about how that must have been for them. But I always have this question, right? What on earth did they talk about? Like you're with God, right? You're walking with him. I mean, all of that is hard for us to imagine where we are, but what on earth did they talk about it? And I say that today because, um, you know, there was no sickness. There was no death. There was no gossip. There was no people letting them down. There was no work in the way that we know work now. There was no fear or worry or doubt. So my question is, what on earth did they talk about? Like when you take an analysis of the conversations you have with your friends, right? It's pretty much that stuff that you talk about, isn't it? So what on earth did they talk to him about? I like to think that it was probably about the beauty of the place in which they lived. I like to think that it was about how they felt or cared for each other. I like to think that they asked God questions. I like to think that they got to know him more. And that's the thing, right? Because intimacy really at its heart is to know and to be known, isn't it? Intimacy with another person, with God, is is to know and to be known. And it's possible to be close, isn't it? To be nearby other people and yet not have intimacy with them. Joe and I had this moment a few months ago. Levi had decided that he didn't want to sleep anymore. And uh, this kind of went on and we were both wrecked, right? And, and I was back at work. Joe was getting ready to go back to work. And we made the decision along the line where it's like, well, like Dave's going to sleep in the spare room because, you know, he's up all night. It's a total nightmare, right? And up until this point in our marriage, we had never done this, right? Elle was the worst sleeper in the world, right? And we, we never did it. We, we, we kept... We stuck together. If one of us is suffering, we're both suffering, right? We were in it. But all of a sudden, just the way life was in this moment, we decided I was going to go to this room and Joe was going to be in this room. And I got it. It's a normal decision, all of that. I'm not getting at people who also do that and all of that sort of stuff. Please hear me. I'm not singling you out for judgment today, right? But over the days that went on, right, I would, I would go to work, work would be full on, come home, get into bedtime routines and all of that sort of stuff, get the kids down, then we'd both be getting on with all the rest of the stuff you've got to do in your life. We would go to bed, Joy would go her way, I would go mine. And I would lie in that room at nighttime, hearing Levi crying, Joy trying to work with Levi. We weren't really talking about it. We were both suffering, struggling in our way through it, desperately just trying to get to the other side. And Joy's anxiety was kind of worse throughout the season. I was struggling to relate to that. And it was just this vicious cycle. And we had this moment, right, where it was like, where's the intimacy gone? Like your life is over there, mine's over here. We're both struggling through this stuff in our life right now. Where is the intimacy gone? We were close, but I wouldn't have said that it was intimate. We were passing each other for about a week. I would say that there was very little known and knowing. And we canned this whole idea. We had this conversation. We're like, this is a terrible idea. Like, if we're in it, we're in it together. We just decided we were going to get through it. And that's why I look so tired all of the time, right? We just decided we were in it. Because intimacy is an important thing. And intimacy is a transforming thing. In today's passage, right, it reads like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. Six times. 
In three and a half verses, Jesus is repeatedly pointing this process back to himself. He's pointing to himself. Why? Because he wants intimacy with his followers as they join him on the way. It's intimacy that he's looking for. And so much of our lives in the Christian experience, right, is seeking authority, isn't it? We want power, miracles. We want things to change in our lives and change in our paths. We want the outcomes, don't we, without the intimacy. We want the power without the presence. And we talked last week about the importance of trust, right, if we find ourselves as self-reliant people. And here it is again. Because losing ourselves, forgetting ourselves, denying ourselves is so dependent on our trusting in God that there is anything there to find at the end. We're not going to forget ourselves unless we believe that there is something, someone to know and to be known by at the end. And in so many ways, intimacy needs trust, right? Intimacy isn't knowledge or just being in the sort of buzzing, highlight kind of environment of the Christian faith, right? It's not about those things. The Bible is full of examples of people who had both of those things and yet missed Jesus, right? Pharisees who knew more than we would ever know. People who watched miracles happen, got amazed by the miracle and missed Jesus in the process. Intimacy is about realizing that Jesus is the reward for our losing ourselves and following him. It's deep relationship with the creator of heaven and earth, to know him and be known by him, to experience his presence, his comfort, his peace, his joy, his love. I've found in my life that God doesn't want to micromanage all the details of my life. The funny thing is, is that that's what I spend much of my time praying to him about, right? The details. And yet I find that when God has shown up, when God has spoken, when I felt like I've had an acute sense of God's presence with me or stuff has happened, right? I've realized that God doesn't want to micromanage all the small details of our lives. I'm not belittling them. They're important. But that's not what his intention is whenever it's about presence and intimacy. You see, he tends to speak more to my identity than he does to about the things that grab my attention. To know him and be known by him. He tends to speak to me about me more than he does about my stuff. Thing is, that is frustrating a lot of the time. Because all I want him to do is speak to me about my stuff. Would you solve this practical problem? Would you figure this stuff out? Because I can't, right? He just doesn't tend to do it. Pete Gregg wrote it better than I ever could in Dirty Glory whenever he wrote this. This is what he says. Learning to dwell... And even to sleep in the love of the Father is offensive to the strategic part of our brains. A violation of the ego, a sort of dying. It can seem irresponsible. Like David dancing in his underpants when he should have been thinking about his reputation as a national leader. It can appear profligate and super spiritual like the psalmist yearning, fainting and even crying out simply to be in God's dwelling place. It can seem naive and scandalous like Mary Magdalene splashing bottles of Chanel on Jesus' feet when the money could have been spent used to feed the hungry. 
It can be inefficient, like Jesus staying up all night in prayer when he really needed to be sharp the next day. It can appear selfish, like Mary abandoning her sister, peeling potatoes in the kitchen so that she could recline at the feet of Jesus. It can seem rude, like Donald McPhail ignoring his important guest to continue his audience with the king. It can seem unstrategic, like me swapping church planting for mere prayer. To be a witness, says the writer Madeline Lengel, is to be a living mystery. It means to live in such a way that one's life would not make sense if God did not exist. That's intimacy. Space created in your life so that you might just know him more and be known by him. It is the intimate space with God where we become less inclined to try and be strategic with him or seek answers to problems and more aware that he is with us that he loves you and allow ourselves to be transformed by that experience. We've recognized throughout Elle's life, I realize I've talked loads about her today. She's probably going to need therapy whenever she's older. But anyway, sorry Elle, it's on record now. I realize that whenever she's uncomfortable about something, right, or nervous, or if she just hasn't seen you all day, all she wants to do is touch you. It sounds silly, right? But it's true. She just wants touched. If she's stressed about something, you'll find as you're kind of standing cooking in the kitchen or something like this, this, this little hand will like slip up your sleeve, up your arm. And she just wants to touch your arm. If she's been upset about something, right? She just wants to come and lie on top of you. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't do anything. She doesn't want anything. She just wants to lie there. And every so often in the last year, we'd find that she would do this thing that she did when she was a tiny baby, which was she just wanted to touch your face. She would come across the room when you're watching TV or when you're sorting something and she would just put her hands just in your face. And it was just like this sense of like, you're there, I'm here to know and to be known. Intimacy doesn't need words. It doesn't need explanations. It doesn't need answers. It's just nearness, and that's enough. Our learning to deny ourselves means two things. It means, first of all, that we are trying to find ourselves. We find ourselves through forgetting ourselves. If we really want to know who we are, then we need to first put ourselves to one side. Self-denial is not just about your chocolates, your money, whatever it is. It's about a whole new self. And secondly, that our learning to deny ourselves, putting aside our tendency just to want God's power or to meet our problems and desire, open up the possibility that if we just stopped speaking and seeking for ourselves, that we might encounter him in the intimate space. It's about intimacy. Intimacy. 